Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian, recording here in Ankara with Professor Metin Atmaja. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So Metin is an assistant professor of late Ottoman history at Ankara Social Sciences University. He defended his dissertation, The Politics of Alliance and Rivalry on the Ottoman-Iranian Frontier, the Babans, 1500-1851, at the University of Freiburg in Germany and he's currently working on a book manuscript based on that project. Today, we'll be drawing on Professor Atmaja's work to discuss the history of the Kurdish emirates, or autonomous princedoms, in the Ottoman-Iranian borderlands, areas that include modern-day eastern Turkey, northern Iraq, and western Iran. We'll be covering a period from the 16th to the 19th centuries, and we'll be looking at the rise and fall of these autonomous emirates and their impact on the region. So first, we'll talk a bit about these Kurdish dynasts who solidified their rule in the region and preserved their autonomy. And then we'll discuss the centralization and reform movements in the Ottoman Empire that led to the eventual dismantling of these Kurdish emirates. So listeners will probably have heard about Kurds as forming a minority of predominantly Muslim people who speak various dialects of the Kurdish language in contemporary Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. But the meaning of Kurdish has changed depending on time and place. And I wanted to talk to you about the historical periods that you study, the ways that you've seen what it meant to be Kurdish changing over time. I mean, did it refer to groups united by language, groups united by faith, class? How do you see it changing in terms of time and place? Uh, yeah, I wrote an article about that. Uh, for uh, the people in the center uh, of the empire, basically the meaning change depends on the political situation of the eastern frontier as well as the eastern provinces. For the 16th century sultans in Istanbul, Kurdistan was kind of like a barrier and frontier in front of the threat from Safavid. Shia Safavids. So Kurdistan's uh, like yeah. the wall separating the Ottomans from the Iranian dynasty, the Safavids. Yeah, uh, but in 17th century, it turns from a, like a concrete wall to a buffer zone. Whereas in 18th, 19th century, for the Ottomans, since Iranian dynasties were not really great threat for them, Kurdistan was an unruly lens for them. So. Uh, when you look into both the official as well as the local sources, for them, Kurdish meant something else. Uh, I mean, for the local people, when we look into the poetry of Malay Jaziri in 16th century and Ahmed Khani in 17th and 18th century, as well as the famous historian Sharafan uh, Bitlisi's Sharafnama uh, in late 16th century, we see that at the beginning of uh, Ottomans, when they arrive, for them, Kurdistan was um, more united and the Kurds were more united people than uh, the 17th and 18th century because uh, the uh, threat was more imminent from <laughs> the Iran Shia administration uh, and the dynasties. So uh, even for them, they would redefine themselves. De depends on these uh, change of politics between the Ottomans and uh, Iranians. Right. The idea of Kurdishness is changing over time, whether it's from the Ottoman administration, which looks at it for sort of political purposes, or whether it's local dynasties there or others who whose idea of 
uh, unity is affected by, say, the presence of a threat on the other side of the imperial border or um, politics going on within the Ottoman Empire? Uh, yeah, uh, but in the 19th century, you don't see that anymore. Uh, it wasn't the Kurds between the uh, Shia, Iran, and Sunni Ottomans, but instead it was the Kurds uh, versus non-Muslims as well as the Europeans. And uh, even among themselves, they start to also be diversified too. I mean, uh, in terms of the language, in early 19th century, you see uh, the rise of uh, Sorani dialect of Kurdish. Uh, Sorani dialect as opposed to? Uh, Kormanji, yeah. uh, basically in the north uh, of Kurdistan. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm s stating this geographically, not politically. Uh, I mean, in the north, you have more Kormanji people and west, Kormanji speakers, whereas in the south, Sorani, whereas in the east of Kurdistan, which is more uh, remaining lands inside of the western Iran, and they speak more on uh, Gorani uh, or Kermanshai or uh, any other uh, dialects more closer to Sorani. So that uh, linguistic division uh, was around that, but the uh, emphasis start to rise in early 19th century when you see more and more uh, literature produced uh, in Sorani dialect. So the publishing brings about these discussions on the nature of language and its relation to Kurdishness. Yeah. So before we go farther into the 19th century, yeah. I wanted to talk a little bit about the rise of these different emirates, some of them that you mentioned, Potan, Baban, and another one, Soran, that you talk about in your work. You go into great detail about the Ottoman rivalry with the Iranian Safavid dynasty during the 1500s. Several wars between these two empires are going on, and these Kurdish emirates are smack in the middle of it. How did these emirates carve out these spaces where they could keep their local dynasties, they could avoid paying much tax or any tax to the center, they could avoid having their people conscripted to the army? How did they do this? Uh, well, short and crisp, uh, by using the rivalry between these two uh, empires, uh, when uh, the first time... Selim I decided to just come and uh, deal with uh, Shah Ismail in uh, 1514. Just around that period, a very influential expert, I would say, a Middle Eastern expert probably, I would call him, Idrisi Bitlisi. Okay, you uh, mentioned him in your way. Uh, yeah, M meets uh, the Sultan. Earlier, he already have some, he has some experience with the Shah and and the dynasties before the Safavids and Mamlukids. I mean, he, that's why I call him a Middle Eastern expert of his own period. I mean, He knew all the important yeah, uh, dynasties. Dynasties was uh, the balances. Uh, so he was originally from uh, Bitlis, and a couple of PhD dissertations were um, uh, written recently about him because of his uh, prolific production. Of so he was also things. a writer as well as a wheeler and, and dealer. Yeah, and he basically came up with a plan uh, uh, for Sultan Selim uh, just to make sure that Shah Ismail wouldn't remain inside of these Kurdish Emirates. So he basically tells him that, uh, okay, after the war, uh, I can bring all these dynasties together and then have them to uh, 
submit their uh, allegiance to uh, the Ottoman Empire. And he was very successful, actually, to accomplish this plan. Uh, he, in a year or so, and from right after the Chaldron War, uh, all the way to end of the 1915, he brings all these dynasties together, and then he uh, has uh, uh, istimalets, these uh, documents of uh, the hereditary rights, um, signed and given to these uh, Kurdish uh, emirates. Given by the sultan yeah. to these emirates, yeah. basically saying, you've that got these rights as a hereditary y- dynasty. Yeah, your your lands are yours and uh, uh, your family are welcome to stay uh, as long as you are loyal to the sultan uh, in the administration. To what extent were these sorts of autonomy arrangements unique to the Kurdish populated areas of the empire? Could you compare and contrast the ways that the empire used this in Kurdistan and other parts of the empire? The Ottomans already had some uh, experience in the Balkans dealing with the notables there when they would conquer it. So, I mean, it wasn't something really special for the Kurds too. But then when they came to the area, they were not Christians like the notables that the Ottomans faced in the Balkans. They were Muslims. So, I mean, at the beginning, they were not sure if they would really have them uh, listed under the central administration or just give them some, you know, uh, exemptions from tax and military. So, uh, but in the end, when they realized that the um, uh, Safavid threat was not going away after even having a decisive victory against the Shah Ismail's military, they decided basically to just give some of these concessions in order to just keep them there, as well as to assure their uh, allegiance. And they compared themselves with the Safavids and tried to make sure that they would be more favorable to the Kurds in order to keep their allegiance to themselves. That's why, I mean, the Ottomans didn't just give it away for the sake of the really like them, but instead they just really pragmatic mm-hmm. in terms of giving such rights. Um, and also the Ottomans were not sure that they would stay because this was still a very a fragile uh, agreement. And also um, the Safavids basically after Shah Ismail, Shah Tahmasp and Shah Abbas, they basically and decided to also uh, uh, be more lenient towards the Kurdish emirs in order to just have them under their influence. And their influence continued, I mean, through centuries. So when studying these Kurdish emirates, some other historians often look to the 19th century as the beginning of the time of reform, when these emirates get slowly taken apart and their rights are taken away. In your work, you talk about how it's not just the 19th, but in fact also the dawn of the 18th century, when you see the beginnings of such reforms taking shape in the empire. What changes do you see going on in these regions of the Ottoman East during this period, and uh, why do you propose this shift in our periodization? Well, uh, first and foremost, uh, it's because of the change in Iran. I mean, you see the 18th century of Iran uh, in, you know, turmoil uh, and kept changing 
between you know the Safavids and later Afsharids and Zendis and finally Qajars. The Kurds, each time they saw a change in politics around themselves, they would re-adjust uh, their position some way or the other. In the end, they were doing politics too. They would uh, participate into these politics themselves. That's one of the reasons. So the weakening of the weakening of Iran, basically. Weakening of it's Iran. hard to play them off of each other if yeah. one of them is in shambles. Yeah, but okay. weakening of Iran meant also weakening of Ottoman Empire in these regions too, because Ottomans basically took away their attention from this part of the empire towards more of uh, places where there is the danger is more uh, eminent, uh, especially towards the uh, Russian. Uh, the regions that uh, you know neighbored with the Russian Empire. When the Kurdish emirs start to see uh, more autonomous administrations inside of the Ottoman Empire, especially the empowerment of notables in the 18th and 19th century, also, uh, for example, in Baghdad, the Georgian slaves, Mamluks who were converted to Islam and came to the region and then became more and more powerful than the governors were. They become them. governors of, of, of Georgia up region. until, I'm sorry, governors of Iraq yeah. until like the 1830s or something? Yeah, or Jalali family in Mosul. So mm-hmm. such families basically also made the Kurdish uh, polity to reconsider uh, their position and try to come up with a solution to, 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 to remain more independent from them, not from the sultan or khalif, but rather from them. Definitely. From the provincial government. Yeah, because uh, always, uh, I mean, they would always look to the more imminent threat, right. and not from Istanbul, which was away uh, from them. Um, I mean, for someone who would travel from Kurdistan all the way to Istanbul, uh, especially the southern part in Iraq, would take tr- two months. Uh, so it was really far away. But whereas from Baghdad to Suleimaniye, it would take just a um, couple of days to arrive. So uh, the threat uh, for them was right. more imminent. Uh, right, more imminent from provincial governors. So yeah. if I'm hearing you correctly, the the political disorder in Iran with the quick changing of many dynasties in a short time. This is one reason. The other one is in the Ottoman Empire as well, there's the military defeat from outside and also the third one you said was the, the these uh, provincial governors becoming yeah, more powerful. Of, yeah, the rise of these provincial families actually. So a lot of this stuff's going on in the 18th century that's already yeah. setting the stage for the dismantling of Kurdish Emirates yeah. in the 19th. Yeah. Okay. I mean, these Kurdish families were not really eminent, uh, immediate threats for the center's power vis-à-vis the other notables, such as Muhammad Ali Pasha, uh, or even the families that we just mentioned in Baghdad and Mosul uh, were, uh, uh, for Ottomans, it was more important to crush them first and then deal with the rest of the nobility further away from the centers of provinces. Okay. So that's why you see the Ottomans coming into Kurdistan to just remove these notables after they dealt with 
the Mamluka family in Baghdad, Jalalis in in Mosul, or even some other families in Damascus and other places. And they tried to deal with Muhammad Ali Pasha, but they couldn't simply. So they let it go. But then they definitely decided to uh, take care of these uh, Kurdish notables just to assure that the centralization would be complete. And we will get to centralization and the dismantling of Kurdish emirates after a short musical break. Welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Matt Gazarian here with Metin Atmanja speaking about Kurdish dynasts in the Ottoman-Iranian borderlands. Earlier we were talking about the rise of autonomous Kurdish emirates on the Ottoman border with Iran during the 16th century into the 17th, 18th centuries. Ottoman sultans, starting in the 18th century, sultans like Selim III, like Mahmoud II, and also their successors, made major changes to government, changes in the military, in conscription, taxation, land ownership, and all sorts of other administrative practices. And it was during this reform period, the Tanzimat, that the central administration sets its sights on dismantling these autonomous Kurdish enclaves within their empire. Metin, could you talk a little bit about this process? Just how did the Ottomans go about taking apart these emirates that have been there for centuries? Uh, after Muhammad Ali's autonomy, Ottomans started writing about these notables. But then uh, Selim III didn't have much power actually to deal with. So these uh, problems basically were passed to the next sultan, Mahmoud II, who basically decided to just go on and take care of most of these you know, autonomous structures. For him, the Kurdish uh, notables were not an f- immediate threat, or at least they were really away from the center to deal with. So, um, But then after 1820, when uh, more problems arise between the Ottomans and Iranians, I mean, the border was basically becoming a political issue between them. Until that time, they would basically handle between each other and no other parts would involve, I mean, Europeans. You mean the the Ottomans and Iranians? Yeah. This is the Uh, Ottomans and the Qajars at this point? Yes, Qajars during this period. But then after that period, you see more and more of the Brits first and later Russians coming into the question of the borderlands and the borders. Starting from 1828, when the Russians basically... Uh, had an agreement with the Iranians and then later on any of the conflict uh, would arise especially in the northern part of that borderlands close to Erzurum, Kars uh, Russia would definitely involved into any of agreements or disagreements and uh, after 1840s especially more conflicts came uh, especially because of the Kurdish tribes uh, who would move in between both lands, Iran's and Ottomans, as uh, the summer pastures and winter 
camps so for people them who keep livestock they're yeah. going they go back and forth between summer high plateaus and then uh, yeah. winter and uh, that was one of the issues that rose in the region and also the political structures and the kurdish emirs also would once in a while have conflict with the other kurdish emirs on the iranian side and then the uh, a political um, a power question in the family itself, for example, in Baban family or in Botan family, in Akkari family, would also uh, raise questions of uh, penetration by Iranians. I mean, they would crave actually for just getting into the conflict in the family in order just to influence the Kurdish emirs. So, so these dynasties from the outside would also kind of have intrigues within these yeah. Kurdish emirates. Uh, seeing all these troubles as well as you know not be able still to penetrate into the region the Ottomans basically decided okay that's the time to just take care of them uh, starting from 1830s with the Soran Emirates centered in Rawandos in, in northern Iraq and later the uh, Bedirkhani families in Jisra and Hakkari and uh, Mux and uh, in the end uh, Soran, uh, I mean uh, Baban uh, families. All these would be basically beaten up with uh, military powers uh, coming from uh, uh, the provincial centers as well as from Anatolia. And they would be uh, mostly taken away uh, after they were defeated, taken away from there. Uh, they were, and most of them would be exiled to uh, the Crete. Someplace far uh, away. Yeah, or Balkans or other places. And uh, you see in some of their uh, memoirs that later on these emirs come together in, in Crete or in uh, Balkans, some places, not because they really wanted to come and they never probably met each other in Kurdistan, but for the first time they saw each other there as an ex uh, exile. But uh, just coming back to some other conflicts uh, before they were removed, I mean, uh, the Ottomans n not only realized that, okay, they had to deal with them, but also uh, they wanted to use some pretext, basically, to take them away. Uh, one of the most useful excuses was that, okay, a Kurdish emir, uh, if he made a massacre of the Nestorians, uh, such as Bedir Khan's uh, massacre. Yes, 42-43 right. in the valley of Zab in Hakkari. This, I mean, the Ottomans were aware of such things, but they would just remain blind to... Look to, the other way. Yeah, look the other way and then to just stay and look and see how, what comes up. And um, and then when the European uh, raised the question of, okay, what ha was happening to these uh, Christian minorities, then the Ottomans would say, okay, that's the time now to go and deal with them. I mean, killing uh, two birds with one stone. I mean, because for them in the east of Anatolia and uh, frontiers it wasn't iran threat as anymore it was now the christian monitors who were influenced more and more by the missionaries as well as the european powers later and these kurdish emirates so uh, how to deal with both to use as i said one way to take care of both 
after they were basically exiled and uh, remained for a while in exile, some of them would try to come back to their native lands, and some even succeeded to do it. Uh, and uh, Ottomans basically started to think how to keep them away from their native lands, and they came up with uh, you know new positions and uh, offices for them. They appointed them as uh, governors, judges. Even later on, uh, some of them would be ministers uh, so they're never sent to the chopping block they're never no. they're never it's not i mean probably that was the difference between mahmoud ii and the sultans coming later on too because during mahmoud ii's period you still see killing of such notables so basically. they would be executions yeah, more but after that after his period you don't see that much and, uh, and this was out of question, especially for the Kurdish emirs, because once you remove them, you don't want huge trouble rising in their native lands. Their people were still there. So then after the, the emirates are removed, these what happens in the region itself? Well, the Ottomans sent governors and qaimaqams from uh, Istanbul to this region. Uh, but then m- many people considered them as uh, aliens because first and foremost, they did not speak the same language. And secondly, they didn't have even the same religious creed. One was Hanafi, the other was Shafi. But uh, beyond that, these people who were appointed from the center, they remain inside of the uh, provincial centers as well as the towns. Beyond that, they never had much power in rural areas. And in the end, basically, people decided to fill this power vacuum by considering the rising Khalidi sheikhs as their natural and political leaders, especially after Mawlana Khalid al-Baghdadi came to the region in 1820. Well, this is a Sufi group, right? Yeah, this is a Sufi group that uh, originates from uh, Naqshbandis of uh, India. But then the leader was a Kurd from Suleimaniyah, mm-hmm. uh, Mawlana Khalid. He goes to India and initiates into Naqshbandiyah through uh, Abdullah al-Dahlavi. And then uh, a year later takes his ijazat and comes back to uh, Ottoman lands and then start to spread his uh, own order all around. After he passed away in 1826, he left behind probably around 12,000 students. And many of those basically went around uh, Ottoman Empire. That's like in a decade, he has 12,000 students. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if that is true from the sources that we read. And then most of these people basically go around uh, Ottoman uh, Empire, uh, even the uh, sultans start to accept them as the quote-unquote official uh, order of the Sufi order of the empire. And it's these sheikhs of this order, these are the ones who start filling the power vacuum yeah, I mean, some of eight, them, after 1851. Yeah, some of them remain in Kurdistan, especially a family named Nehri uh, in uh, today's uh, Shemdinli in Hakkari. Uh, bordered with Iraq and Iran. And, uh, this family becomes, after Seyyid Taha, becomes very powerful. And then people start to 
accept their religious power first and later on their political power too. Uh, you see these sheikhs even supported by the Ottomans and the Brits to influence the Kurdish tribes and uh, other people in the region just to make sure that the Russians would not you know, attract them uh, to their attract side. Attract them to the Russian cause. These, on the one, one hand, naturally comes, but on the other hand, as you see, that even the Ottomans empowered them just to to make sure that you know, they would now become, uh, the Kurds would now become a buffer zone between the Russians and the Ottomans, not anymore between the Iranians. Iranians. And so Ottomans, it's still buffer you know, zone politics, yeah. but it's moved to the north yeah. a bit. And, and they realized that they still need some uh, notables in the region. I mean, even after they removed all these families, they just couldn't make it through uh, after a few years of chaos in the region. Uh, so... Basically, after these emirs and their families are exiled, one of the thing, one of the trends you see are the rise of Khalidi Sheikh. sheikhs like Sayyid Taha. Are there any other um, either Sufi groups, yeah. tariqats, or uh, other families that you see also kind of rising to fill this power vacuum? Uh, yeah, the same happens in south of Kurdistan in. Suleimani and Senandaj on the Iranian side. Qadris were. Kadriya was more um, influential there, and uh, the uh, Khalidi sheikhs um, focused more on the north of and west of Kurdistan. Right, uh, the areas that are now incorporated into the Republic of Turkey. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, for example, Talabani family related with today's Talabani in Suleimani were Qadris, and they were very influential in the area. And later on, they even became uh, politically really uh, powerful during the uh, British mandate in Iraq. Okay. So there's a trend that you're describing here, which is that after the the dismantling of these autonomous Kurdish emirates, uh, starting around 1851, when the last one is taken apart, the the sheikhs of the Halidi and the Qadiri okay, yeah. orders mm-hmm. or brotherhoods, mm-hmm. um, many of them step in to fill this power vacuum. So this period is also a period of great change in the 19th century, that Tanzimat, and particularly for political equality for non-Muslims. There are a lot of motioning towards the equal defense of, of property and life, I think are some of the phrases that they use for all subjects, regardless of their religion. Mm-hmm. So with the rising of these religious figures in the power vacuum, how does this shape the history of the region after the fall of the dynasts? You know, at the same time that the central government is saying non-Muslims are going to get more rights, you have the rising of these two Sufi orders into more political power in the region. How do you see that playing out? Uh, Well, I mean, especially after 1856 reforms, the Tanzimat had a certain amount of the influence in the region but not in terms of the conflict between the Muslims and non-Muslims. But after 1856, when the Muslims realized that they were not superior anymore officially, they were very much alienated. What does that sound like in the sources that Uh, you look at? Yeah, they even blame some some of the sources from locals. Uh, You see, they say that, okay, this reform period is the cause of all problems, illnesses, even... Illnesses. uh, Yeah, like uh, when I was reading 
story of a man from a memoir stating that, okay, one of my eyes gone blind because of an illness, and this is caused by these reform periods. He blames, I mean, everyone blames everything on the reforms. Um, they use Tanzimat. They say yeah, that it's the yeah, problem of the Tanzimat. Yeah. It's the Tanzimat that caused my blindness. He says, everything's gone bad. I mean, that's the common expression for them during this period. You discuss how the sons and daughters of these old emirs uh, go on to be important figures in Ottoman administrative and intellectual life. And you point out that uh, however we want to judge these Tanzimat reforms as they were carried out in the regions, they were these Tanzimat reforms, or at least the, the sort of ideas of progress that they were trying to spread, did actually catch on quite well within these notable families. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, once many of these families were exiled, some of them in Istanbul, some of them, some of them even voluntarily went to exile to Istanbul just to find their way through bureaucracy, such as the famous Sherif Pasha's father, Said Pasha, who arrived there with two other families from Suleymaniye. And later on, Said Pasha became the Minister of Foreign Affairs during the Abdul Hamid's period from... 1880s till 1890s, and his son, Sherif Pasha, he studied in France and became an attaché uh, militaire and later on at the camp, and finally he became an ambassador in Stockholm. And the same was also for other families too, for Bedrkhanis, for uh, Shemdinli, Nehri families. Uh, Taha and Ubedullah's yes. family. Uh, for example, Sayyid Abdul Qadir, who is a very well-known figure in early 20th century, he becomes the head of the Senate during the Committee of Union and Progress. And uh, many of those were actually somehow reintegrated into the Ottoman polity in late 19th and early 20th century. But uh, CUP's administration changed almost everything for them once they excluded many of them from the power and alienated them from the center, they start to uh, reconsider their positions. And even some of them start to think they were discriminated because of their Kurdish backgrounds. Mm. They uh, say that in their memoirs or wherever? Uh, yeah. In in uh, early 20th century, you don't see very precisely, but then you see an emphasis on the cultural background they had. They, right. Some of them even remembered their uh, exile, uh, their family's exiles in uh, 19th century. And when they come across this discrimination, they remember that and then they start to say that, okay, this happened before to us. That means that we are basically not welcomed into this Ottoman world. Because and the Committee of Union and Progress, the party that is the main mover and pusher to push the Sultan to the side and reintroduce the Constitution in 1908, a very important uh, number of them were, they, they bought into an idea of um, Turkishness being the feeling, the identity, the whatever you want to call it, that would hold the empire together. So is this why these these dynasts are feeling this this exclusion from the inner circles of the of the people in power during this period? Yeah, after experiencing the long period of suppression 
and uh, censorship during Abdul Hamid, basically almost all ethnic and religious groups supported CUP politically, uh, including the Kurdish uh, notables and intellectuals too. But once uh, you know the revolution was accomplished in uh, 1908, a few months later they realized that it wasn't something they were looking for. It wasn't a real revolution. A real revolution meant becoming very inclusive, both in, in terms of their identity as well as in terms of their positions, political, dynastical positions too. I mean, they realized that Ottoman uh, sultans were even uh, more lenient towards their dynastical background than the CUP members themselves. So... That changed the question for them. I mean, they basically withdrew their support. Uh, many of them even went to exile one more time after a few months of coming back to Istanbul. Do they also join the opposition, the Liberal Party that opposed the CUP in Parliament? Yeah, for example, Sherif Pasha, he remained in Istanbul for a few months and later on he moved to Paris and then established the Ottoman Radical Party uh, he also started to publish a, a periodical called Meshrutiyet uh, or Constitution. He gathered most of these oppositions to CUP around himself. Uh, in Paris? Yeah, in Paris. And CUP tried to you know, assassinate him once in a while. and um, The casual yeah, assassination yeah. attempt. Yeah, or uh, banning this periodical to come into the lands of empire. Uh, so, uh, I mean... That's Sherif Pasha, who was originally from uh, Suleimania, whereas uh, Bedr Khani family members, some of them went to Cairo, uh, some of them went to uh, Switzerland and Paris too, and start to establish their own periodicals as well, and start to raise the question of Kurds more and more. I mean, the Eastern question now for them was more about the Kurds, not the Armenians or not the... Uh, Ottomans themselves uh, became more specific for them. And World War One for them became even a turning point, you know, to believe in that they, they were totally excluded from the Ottoman polity. So all these process basically accumulated into 1919's Paris Peace Conference in the body of uh, the Kurdish delegates led by Sherif Pasha. And he asked for a Kurdish state uh, in terms of, uh, you know, having a balance between a new state in Anatolia as well as an Armenian state and uh, some Arab states that would be established around it. He basically said, okay, if there is no way for us to remain with the Ottomans, the best is for the Kurds is to come up with, uh, to carve out a new state there. So it didn't come to his mind right away, as I said. I mean, there is a long background of all this that we talked about. Right. He was, he grew up in, at least for part of his life in that region before his family was exiled. His family had been famously powerful there. And then now he was, as a result of the political situation, forced to, to, to offer this yeah. solution that would actually have him probably going back there. But... That was not what happened, as we all know. I think the First World War, we can wait for another podcast to get to. Yeah. Metin, I want to thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me, Matthew. So 
we've discussed quite a bit the the rise and fall of Kurdish Emirates from the 16th century, rising out of the imperial rivalry with the Ottomans and the Safavids, up until the 19th century, uh, some different imperial rivalries between the Ottomans, the Romanovs, the Qajars, and we've also talked a bit more about the ways that these autonomous emirates in that region that rose out of those imperial rivalries were eventually dismantled and the sort of political afterlife of those dynasties in the capital and elsewhere as well as the ramifications for the regions where they used to rule um, as new officials come in and try to set up their rule. For those of you who'd like to find out more we will post a bibliography of further reading on our website ottomanhistorypodcast.com Uh, You can also join us on Facebook, where you can stay up to date with our newest episodes and join our community of over 30,000 listeners. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care.